Well, this month we, I am uh, leading Zoom meetings on Saturday with four uh, pastoral theology students, including David Greenville students. And so I'm marinating in the subject of what Greenville Seminary calls the Reformed Pastor. And um, as you're going to find in the sermon, you have a very important role in the life of David Rios. So with that in mind, uh, there, are, there are three books in the New Testament that are called pastoral epistles because they're particularly dealing with the work of a minister or a pastor. And uh, while we're going to be spending most of our time in First and Second Timothy, uh, Titus has three chapters. We have three weeks, and it's good to be able to read through a whole book in one month. So turn in your Bibles to Titus chapter 1 and verses 1 to 15. Titus chapter 1 and verses 1 to 15, and that's page 1,185 in your pew Bible. servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Notice the way he describes himself, not first as an apostle, a servant. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I've been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, literally a one-wife husband, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer as God's steward must, must be above reproach, he must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in literally healthy or even health-giving doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party, they must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Incidentally, don't think that just applied in the first century. Okay. One of the Cretans, a prophet of our own, said Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And this testimony is true. And therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound or healthy in the faith. 
not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. And just a note, um, we always need to be gracious in our speech. But there is a carnal, carnal gentleness that blushes at using language the Holy Spirit does not blush to use. Okay, The grass withers and the flowers fade away, but the word of our God stands forever, to which we say together, Hallelujah, and thanks be to God. There are many special, unique privileges of a church. And I want to remind you that the church is not the made in the model of a secular business. Um, climbing up the corporate ladder, uh, getting the promotion from the CEO or your supervisor, um, doing the things to curry favor so that you can make more money in the establishment. Sadly, that kind of corporate mentality, secular corporate mentality, is all too common in churches today. Uh, when churches abandon a commitment to the final authority of Scripture, they'll use any model that seems to work, and the corporate model does in many ways. But not only is it not the model for the church, it eviscerates the special privileges given to the church. The church is a spiritual organism, and by that I mean capital S, uh, the Holy Spirit. That's why it's called in, in the scriptures a body, uh, like your own body. It's a living organism. It has life. Uh, it has growth. Uh, there is multiplication in it, and, and including all kinds of different cells that are within the body. It's an interesting study just to, to read about the functions of cells. You have, you have uh, well, stem cells out of which all other cells come, and then you have muscle cells, and you have nerve cells, and, and you have red blood cells, and you have white blood cells, and so many others. And within the body, each of them has its own unique role, and role without which we would not live. You're studied, all you have to do is study cells, and you realize the whole concept of, of macroevolution just by chance is utterly, takes way, way too much faith to believe that that kind of order comes by chance. Anyway, um, as, as, as you think of, of one of the privileges of the church, and I had a lot of fun trying to figure what, it's, what cell it's most like. It's kind of like a nerve cell, okay? One of, uh, one of the, uh, the special privileges of the church is to, as, as nerve cells, number one, pray for and to know and to observe and to be a part of the calling out of church leaders. That's one of your great privileges as a church, to pray for church leaders, to get to know them as they're forming, to observe them, and to be part of their lives, and to call out deacons and elders and ministers. Now let's just focus for just a bit on, on ministers, okay? In the scriptures, the, the New Testament, 
there is the language of the Apostle Paul in particular, be given the ministry, which is really the word is the service. It, it is actually the same word as deaconing. But, but, but he puts it in the language of the priestly service of the Old Testament. It's particularly connected with, with the temple or with the church. It's particularly connected with, with teaching and preaching and overseeing God's people. And that's the term that we use for the minister of the gospel. And within that, we have three categories of ministers. And, and you can see these in the scriptures. One, one is a teacher. Okay, the, the, the minister is one who is to be a pastor teacher. And there's a lot of that. We have certain men, like Dr. Innes was this, that are set apart. They, don't, they preach, but they primarily they teach in a, in a school or they'll teach in a church or on a university or whatever. And they're particularly gifted in their ministry and teaching. And then you have the office of the evangelist. And the evangelist is also a minister, but an evangelist is not connected with one particular church. An evangelist is someone who is free to do evangelism. And as I was mentioning to the students yesterday, in, our, uh, in my opinion, one of the wonderful parts of Presbyterian tradition, uh, there have been uh, the other category of ministers, pastors, who would frequently work with evangelists who would be in the area for a while or called to that. And the pastor focused on the flock. The evangelist focused on dealing with the unconverted. God would convert the unconverted, and the pastor's work would increase. Beautiful system when you do what the scriptures say. And in that case, allowing certain men to be free to do evangelism. Now, our focus is a pastor. And, and what's a pastor? A pastor is a minister who's given charge over, in most cases, one local church body. And that body of people is given to that minister as a pastor to be their shepherd. And even that concept is very rich in the scriptures, and we can explore it at another point. But we're just looking at the matter of, of not only, not only a, a pastor as a minister, but our privilege that we have and that you have right now not just the privilege in general when we pray for churches, but now and over the next year, the privilege that you have to what? To work intelligently with a man and with his family, but with a man who is preparing to be a pastor. And I cannot overstate how important your role is in this. An intern is not a gopher for a pastor. Go for this, go for that, go for the other thing. He's not an assistant pastor. He's not a pastor at all. He's an intern. And if you just think of the intern in relation to the pastor, you are making a huge mistake because we're all in this together with our intern, David Rios, and his family as we think about the making of a minister. And that's the title of this series. And it's not only, it's not only for David, but it's also for you uh, because you are part of this. How, over this year, do you plan to know, to observe, and to be a part of the life of David Rios and his family with a view, listen carefully, to being Christ's voice to see if he should be in the ministry? And that's what it is. A congregation is meant to be Christ's voice saying, yea or nay. 
when it comes to the ministry and the call. And David knows about this. He knows he's here, but I'm not particularly just, I'm dealing with the issues. It just so happens that David has to is the one that's right in the center of all of this. So here's what we're going to do, okay? Um, number one, and what I'm doing for this is in the pastoral theology class, I think there's almost a whole day in which I, I would deal with the call to the ministry. And over three weeks, I want to try to distill that material uh, years ago, when I was working through this, I heard the material by my own mentor in the ministry, one of them, Pastor Albert N. Martin, who's a Calvinistic Baptist, and uh, his material was so good, he admitted he got a lot of it from Presbyterians, and I said, Pastor Martin, could I have your permission to take that material, give you credit, but then Presbyterianize it again? And he said, sure. So I'm giving him credit where credit is due, although really what he did and what's here is really very much a distillation of what you would read in, in many, many books uh, that include the topic of the call to the ministry. So the topics are going to be, really for this week, it's desire and graces, although desire itself is a grace. And then next week, gifts. And then I've got to figure a shorter way to put it, external recognition and confirmation, which is a very interesting theme in the scriptures with respect to the making and calling of a minister. But remember, um, you're a church. You're not a Fortune 500 company. And you're going to be the voice of Christ when it comes to David Rios. So you better do it with the understanding of the Word of God. Hence this series, okay? How is a minister made? Ready? Here we go. You're going to want to take some notes on this and go over it and think about it, meditate on it, because it's part of your work. And I've broken it down into four parts. Number one, hidden beginnings. Hidden beginnings in the making of a minister. You don't have to turn to it, but Jeremiah chapter 1 and verse 5 fascinating. God speaks to this man who's now an adult and is called to be the weeping prophet. He's going to preach to a nation that's going to be devastated in judgment. And God says to Jeremiah, one, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you or I loved you. That's what we call God's sovereign election. Even before the world was made, he chose a multitude that no man can number to be his own. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Number two. And before you were born, I consecrated not fetal tissue, but you. Scriptures always speak of the formation of a person in the womb as a person. And in fact, frankly, it's just acknowledging what all medical science, if it's honest, says. Before you were born, I consecrated you. We're going to come back to What does that mean? I was, while you were being gestated over nine months in your mother's womb, you, you were being set apart for what? I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Now, prophets gave the word of God by immediate revelation, uh, prophets as an office has ceased. We have sufficient prophets in the scriptures. But now we would say preachers, or pastors, or teachers, or ministers. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you. I had planned for you to be a prophet to the nations. That is a fascinating series of thoughts. 
most views, and there's an interesting question of how the, the soul and the body are united at the point of conception, and <laughs> some other day we can deal with that issue. But most believe, and I think rightly, uh, there's a soul that, that God has made, and he unites that, even at the time of conception, uh, with, with that body. And I, I don't know whether that soul is a soul that is particularly ordained to be a minister and is a different kind of soul. I don't know, but it's an interesting thought because we speak about the spirit of a minister. And, and you've got to wonder if it's one way or another it's connected with the soul. The scriptures don't say, but it's interesting to think about. Genetic makeup. That genetic makeup of that person that God in the hidden beginnings is forming to be a minister. There is a, there's a special kind of a genetic makeup of a man who has the kinds of things you'll be hearing about in just a few minutes. The development of the nervous and emotional system of everyone, but especially of a minister, where there is a particular kind of response to the stimuli around him. And if he's a minister, he's going to have the emotions of our Lord who wept. And as well, a system that is vibrating with concern for humanity. That's all, that's all woven into that person when it's born. And then we'll learn a little bit more about this next week in a different way. The development of the heart, the lungs, the brain, the vocal cords, the throat, the mouth going to be a preacher got to be a speak speak and and all of that all of that over nine months is connected not just with jeremiah uh, but with and really in a real sense with all of you because you're all formed for particular purposes but for the minister consecrated even in those hidden beginnings to be a minister of the word of god and just a note on all of that don't despise the way God made you. That's what we're dealing with in our culture. People struggling with issues that do come in a fallen world, no doubt. But their response is to despise the way God has made them, to try to become like God and remake themselves and fail miserably in the process. Last night, I was speaking with a, a woman who's a counselor here in the island, and we were both chatting about what we're beginning to see. Now, it's a cloud as big as a man's hand, but it's there, of people who have gotten the gender-changing, quote-unquote, surgery, and now realizing it doesn't change the heart. And the mess that is being created by certain laws and by medical institutions, I'll tell you the way it's going to be corrected. Number one, by lots of legitimate lawsuits against malpractice by the medical community. And number two, by biblical counselors who are going to be able to say, don't despise the way God made you. We can work with the issues that come by the gospel. But anyway, don't despise the way God made you. Okay, so, so there's hidden beginnings. 
And a great book on that, The Mystery of Providence by John Flavel, which is a Puritan classic. And you get it in a simplified edition, but he, he begins by dealing God's providence, remember Esther, in our lives, uh, even when we're being formed in the mother's womb. So that's number one. Making of a minister, life and new life. A person is born, and, and that person that's going to be a minister has a certain background, a certain area, time, which he's brought up, certain parentage, or perhaps not a parentage, but is brought up in all, all of those factors. Each one of them has its own special role in the formation of a minister. I won't bore you with a lot of personal details. Believe me, I could fill them in as a minister. But looking back on being raised by a single parent, by a widowed mother, and having opportunities to work in the public sector, even when I was young, all, all of those things, I didn't think about it at the time. I wasn't even converted. Uh, but, but those are things God used in the life that he gave, the experiences he gives. But it's especially new life. When God takes a person and gives that person new birth, birth from heaven, right, and uh, makes the person a pilgrim in Pilgrim's Progress and sets you on, on the highway away from the city of destruction to, to the heavenly kingdom. And, and what is new birth? A lot of ways you can put it. It's God, it's God taking his kingdom, which is in heaven under the reign of Christ, and, and conquering your heart making you surrender to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ. And not just, not just subduing your heart to him, but, but infusing you with what that kingdom is all about. A desire for the glory of God, a desire to enjoy God, a desire to bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, a desire to, to grow like the Lord Jesus Christ, a love for the Lord's people. All these things you see, God takes the things of heaven and puts them in you. He gives you the fruit of the Holy Spirit, which is a down payment of, of what heaven's all about. That's what new birth is. And in certain people, when God works within them, he grips them with a fascination with the official service in that kingdom the official service of what the Bible calls ambassadors for Christ, what the, what the Bible calls heralds, those that are with the king and that speak of the king, or, if you want, of pastors and teachers and evangelists. And he kind of grips them with that part of the life of the kingdom of God in that new life. Or if I could use Pilgrim's Progress again, interpreter's house. You come to interpreter's house, interpreter was John Bunyan's pastor, actually, the man that impacted him as a young man. And interpreter, the pastor, lays out for the young Christian on the way some of the dynamics of the Christian life and church life. And when God's forming a man for the minister, they kind of like to stay in interpreter's house. They're fascinated with, with all the dynamics of that, as well as leadership in the kingdom. Okay, so that's just one and two. Now, the seedling. 
okay? As God is making a minister in the same way you plant a seed and then you begin to see the little sprout as it comes out. Oh, if you've just got a little sprout right now, it's too late. <laughs> but in the spring, as the little sprouts come up, and for that, you're going to want to look at 1 Timothy chapter 3 using your pew Bibles, I think in most of your cases. 1 Timothy chapter 3, and that's page 1178. We're going to plop here for a moment. The seedling, 1 Timothy 3 and verse 1, this saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires, and we'll come to that word in a moment, to the office of overseer or bishop, which is a name for the function of a pastor overseeing a church, he desires a noble or actually a good task. And the $64,000 question is, what does Paul mean by that good? Basically, the idea is not only a good work, but it's a lot of work. Okay, So, so the seedling in a man is what? It's desire. Again, no, notice the language. If anyone aspires to, reaches out to is the idea, or longs for the office of an overseer or a bishop. He desires a noble task. That, that doesn't just speak of the, of the desire, but the earnestness of He has a certain earnestness. He cannot get out of his own system with respect to the work. Now, sometimes that's just within. And, and, and a man will say, I don't know what this is, but I... I am just captivated with the work of the ministry. And that's the seedling that comes up. And not just captivated with it, but I think that's the way I'd like to spend my life. In fact, I'm even willing to do what's necessary for that. When, when, when Dr. Gaffey desired to be a medical doctor, she not only had that desire, an earnest desire, she was willing to stretch out over many years to develop those skills. And that's the same thing in the seedling of the making of a minister. There's that, that desire, an aspiring to and, and a desire. And, and that begins within, or sometimes, what's interesting, it actually comes by the promptings of others. Where, where wise people in a church see something in a man and say, have you ever thought about the ministry? Now, again, I don't want to use too many personal illustrations, but, but that was the case with me. I regarded myself as probably the last kind of a person who would ever be a minister, given what my life was before I was converted. And I hadn't been converted for but four or five years when the elders of the church that I attended sat down with me and said, we think instead of being a lawyer, you ought to go to seminary and be a pastor. And not only could you have hit, hit me with a bat, but you could have hit Margaret with three of them after that. And it was totally different. It, it was, it, I frankly had not even thought 
about the ministry. So see, there's different ways that seedling can, can pop above the ground. And the point, though, this aspiring to or desiring, which is in a sense, kind of like a lighthouse, okay? It, it's kind of there, and the light goes on, and then it goes off, and it goes on, and goes off. At least that's the way it was for me and for many. But notice, the focus is on the work. It's not the office, but the work. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a good work. And the focus is on the work. And usually, you know something of what that work is about, when you see it carried out in a reasonably healthy church life. That's why one of the reasons when we look at interns, as we did with David, we want to know the church that they go to. Uh, because the church that they go to if needs to have a reasonably healthy model, as Woodruff Road Presbyterian Church in America does, in fact an excellent model, of, of, of what a minister is and a ministry is. And they see that. In, in church life, okay? And so, so the focus is on the work, and usually by seeing. But here's the question, okay? We read this, and you go on. He desires a noble task. Pray tell, what is it? What is this good work that he desires? And I think you can break it down into three parts. This is just dealing now with the desire, not even the graces yet. Desire. One, it's a desire to be used as a servant to edify the people of God. That's why Paul begins in Titus by saying, Paul, a servant. Any man who's in the ministry or desires to go in the ministry who doesn't see himself first as a servant to the people of God shouldn't even be in the ministry. Period. Because you're representing the great servant who humbled himself. And if a man is not willing to be in that position, he cannot be a Christian minister in the true sense of the word. So, so th there is this desire to be used as a servant to edify the people of God. Ephesians chapter 4, the apostle, it's a beautiful picture. Christ is, ascends to heaven. He leads captivity captive. There's all these things in the world that have been captive to the devil. Now Christ has got them. And he gives gifts to people. He gives gifts to all kinds of people, all of us, in order that we might represent him in the world. And he gives some, some, to be pastors and teachers or pastor teachers for the equipping of saints unto the work of ministry, unto the building up of the body of Christ. And so it stands to reason that if a man desires this good work, the first thing is it's a desire to be used as a servant to edify the people of God. You're, you're possessed with that. that. That's something you can't get out of your mind. Second, there's a desire to be used... And you can put it in a couple of ways. Either call out God's elect, if you want to put it like that, or it's a desire to be used to rescue people from sin and death. And this is often missing within the Reformed community. It's not first a desire to teach people the Reformed faith that we want to do. You want to rescue people. You don't want a lifeguard who majors on understanding what it is to be a lifeguard. You want a lifeguard who rescues people. And so the Apostle Paul says, my heart's desire and my prayer for Israel is that they be saved. 
He was gripped with that. And, and since you're in Timothy, and let, let's, I'm going to try to, rather than have you flip around to a lot of things, turn to the second letter of, to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 10, uh, which is page 1181. I think you, can, for one, you think you can find it yourself. Therefore, Paul, and Paul says, speaking of Christ, for whom he's suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God isn't bound. Therefore, because even though I'm bound, the word of God isn't therefore. I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Well, what is that? You desire a labor in which, a good work, in which you're used to call out God's elect people, knowing that the word of God is not bound. And that's important, because if a minister doesn't believe that the word of God is unleashed and God will do his work, he'll get discouraged. But that's, that's for something else. And, and, but it's also to rescue people. And here, I want you to listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and beginning at verse 19. And, and because this is not, at least it wasn't in my upbringing, my training, was not emphasized the way it should be. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning at verse 19, Though I'm free from all. Now listen to the language. I've made myself as a servant to all. He's a servant of Christ to those before him. That I might win more of them. Oh, no, wait a minute. I don't think that's translated properly. Paul should have said, I've made myself a servant to all, that the elect might be saved by sovereign grace. And that's true. That's not what the Holy Spirit says here. I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. How would you like a lifeguard who comes to you with a pole, reaches it out to you half-heartedly, and says, hey, if the Lord wants you to be saved from drowning, you're going to be saved from drowning. There's nothing more I can do. You don't want that. You want someone who, with all of his or her heart, wants to see you saved. And so it is with a minister. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order that I might win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might, that I might win those under the law, that the Holy Spirit might convert those under the law. That's true. Paul says that, and the Holy Spirit says that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all people, that by all means I might be the instrument of the Holy Spirit to save some. That's true. That's not what the Holy Spirit says. That I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them 
in its blessings. And folks, I say this as someone, my credentials as a Calvinist, I think, are unimpeachable. God's math is 200%. 100% God's sovereignty, 100% man's responsibility. Great question to ask a minister. Are you comfortable as a Calvinist saying you win people? And if they're not, maybe they need to go back to school for a while. I sound adamant about it. <laughs> That's how the scriptures are, okay? So, second thing is that they have a desire to be used to rescue people, to call out God's elect. And the third is a desire to carry out a God-given stewardship. A desire right before that, the Apostle Paul says, if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity. Uh, that, that is, there's, there's a burden. That's, see, there's a desire, a burden laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I'm still entrusted with a stewardship. What's a stewardship? God says, young man, I've consecrated you from the womb. You've been formed. I've given you a desire. You've got the graces you're going to hear about shortly. You're given a role to work in Franklin Square, to work in Comac, to work wherever it would be. I gave that to you, and you have a responsibility to fulfill it faithfully. And if you're desiring the ministry, you have some sense of what that stewardship is and you want to fulfill it. Now, these things, the desire to be used as a servant to edify the people of God, desire to be used to call out God's elect, to rescue people, desire to carry out a God-given stewardship, these, these are things that pulsate in a man whom God is forming as a minister, and that continues to grow in the ministry. You have an even deeper desire to be a servant to God's people. You have an even deeper desire to see people saved and to save them. You have an even deeper desire to carry out faithfully the stewardship God has given you. So the seedling that grows into seminal form becomes this wonderful, large, fruit-bearing thing throughout life. How does a man deal with this? Well, when a man is feeling that desire, number one, you really look to God. Lord, what is this? <laughs> what is this, genuine or not? You look to God. And then you go to church leaders. When our son Jonathan what was we had a good position with a uh, with chase with 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 uh, with um, a, a great uh, J P Morgan Chase in the city, and he was on fast track. I can see why, not because he's my son. God gifted him. And he came to the study one day. He said, "Dad, I, my work fascinating, but Dad, I want to be a minister. I want to tell people about Jesus." He said, well, you know what to do. He says, I'm not even going to tell me that, Dad. I've got to go to the elders. <laughs> and he did. And they spoke honestly with him. He was newly married. And they said, well, let's give it a little bit of time, Jonathan. Let's see how you do with your marriage. Give you an opportunity to teach and so on. And, and, and so that's what we're talking about. You go to deal with people who will deal honestly with you. If I could use an illustration, it's the same pattern 
is, is when, I'll say, a young man wants to get married. At least this is the way it ought to be <laughs> anyway. But you, you see marriages around you, and you see men and women and children, and you say, you know, uh, I think I'd like to be married one day. And, and, and so there's this desire that's there. And then you, you find out a, a little bit more about what marriage is about. And you say, yeah, I think I'd really enjoy this. And then you've got to go to premarital counseling. We'll get to that a little bit later with training. But, but you see what it is. It's not mystical, folks. It's not a matter of I raised my hand in an emotional service and said, I want to go in the ministry. You're thinking about this. It's very methodical. Presbyterians do things and all ought to do it decently and in order. There's an order to all of this, okay? It's not mystical. The old story, a man comes to the pastor and he says, Pastor, I'm called to preach the gospel. And he says, well, how do you know? And he says, I saw a cloud. And in the cloud, it was so clear. G-P-C. Go preach Christ. I'm called. And the preacher says, how do you know it didn't mean go plant corn? Okay, so you see, it's not a mystical thing. All right, so we go on and on and on, and we're not going to go on and on. And let's, let's stay in First Timothy. If you've moved your text, you're going to come back, because, and incidentally, here I'm using a lot of notes. Otherwise, forget it. I'd be here till 4 o'clock in the afternoon. This is 15 years worth of teaching trying to distill in a few messages. Let's look now from the seedling. Let's look at the plant. You're going to be, you're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 3. The plant is graces. The graces that make a minister. Now, graces are more important than gifts. Gifts are really important. There's three major ones. We'll deal with those, God willing, next week. Graces are first. Why? Matthew chapter 7. It's one of the scariest words in the New Testament. It's the last day. And Jesus will say, here's the word, many will say, We've prophesied in your name. We've done many wonderful things in your name. And Jesus says, I never knew you. Depart from me. That's in the Bible. It's the end of the Sermon on the Mount. It's real. That's why that language in Titus is so severe. Ministry Watch is a site that I look at every day because it's kind of a, it's kind of a watchdog group of the various quote-unquote Christian organizations that are out there that are appealing for funds. Brothers and sisters, before you give to organizations, you better check them out. There's a lot of phonies out there. This past week, they issued the bottom ten of organizations to which you should consider giving. The last ones. Every single one was led by one of the quote-unquote prosperity preachers. I've listened to some of these guys as much as I can stomach it. These guys are good speakers. Creflo Dollar. This guy knows how to speak. Benny Hinn knows how to communicate to an audience. They're also phonies, and they are also crooks. Period. Period. 
not only in their theology, but in their practice. And that's why gifts are not the first thing. He's such a gifted speaker. What does he teach? What's his life like? What does he do with the money that's given to him? Yeah, if the scriptures say the opposite, to be crooked, is despicable, then yeah, it is important to raise that. Anyway, okay, so we're dealing with, we're dealing with graces. And, and generally, those graces are, are these. We're going to come to 1 Timothy in specifics in, in a moment, but generally they're these. When you're looking for a man that God is forming in the ministry, God has implanted the kingdom of God in that person, and, and he, he's, he, he's in some way or another desiring the ministry, what do you want to see? Well, generally, a deep and growing devotion to the person and work of Christ. Yeah, love the Reformed faith. As I was telling the fellows yesterday, the Reformed faith is a beautiful skeleton. It's even, a, if you will, a beautiful body. But there's clothes on it, and those clothes are the Lord Jesus Christ, a deep and growing devotion to the person and work of Jesus. Why? What is eternal life, Jesus said? It's to know God, to know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. Well, if you don't know who Jesus Christ is and love him, you ain't going to be able to communicate him to other people very well, right? So there has to be a deep and growing devotion to the person and work of Jesus. And you see this with Jesus and Peter. Jesus could have lanced Peter for his denying him. He doesn't lance him, he forgives him. But when he signals Peter out, knowing that Peter is going to be an apostle, he says, Peter, you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Go feed my sheep. Now he says other things in there. It's a fascinating development. That's the point. Do you love Jesus? And you want a minister who loves Jesus, even above his own wife and, and children. Number two, generally, a deep and growing experience of the dynamics of sin and grace. A deep and growing experience of the dynamics of sin and grace, or if you want, the experience of sin and grace. Paul, Romans 6. As many who have been baptized into Christ, have died to Christ, they're united with him in his death. Romans 7. Good things I want to do, I find myself not doing them. The things I know I shouldn't do, I find myself doing them. O wretched man that I, not was, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. You want a minister who pulsates with that who has a deep and growing experience of the dynamics of sin and grace. And incidentally, a minister never retires from that. I reflected, I guess maybe because I'm teaching pastoral theology again in recent weeks, sins that, that I was not particularly convicted of years ago, that now drive me more and more to Christ. And you want that in a minister because that's you. You, you deal with sin as well. And if you have a legalistic minister, he's going to taunt you. 
If you have a licentious minister, he's going to leave you alone. You have a godly minister, he'll provoke you in a good sense to come to Christ with yourself. Okay, so so deep and growing experience of the dynamics or the exper- exper- uh, dynamics of sin and grace. Paul, First Timothy one twelve to sixteen, he says. He says, this is a faithful saying, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I'm chief. And he goes on and he says, I'm made to be a type, a tupos, a model to all those who believe on him. That, that's what we're getting at. And then in general, a deep and genuine and growing love of people, a deep, genuine, not, not put on by a minister, a deep, genuine and growing love of people. And, and this often, I'm, I'm telling you, in our own circles, people say, why do, you, why do you criticize Reformed churches and the Orthodox Presbyterian Church? Why did you point your finger at the Arminians? I'm not one. The Bible says, pluck the beams out of your own eyes. I love the church of which I'm a part. I wouldn't want to be a part of another one. Sometimes it drives me nuts. Sometimes I drive myself nuts. Men, they spend all of their time in their books and their studies coming up with the finest reformed manuscript to thrill the people. Brother, get out of your study and get with people. Because Jesus did. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And ministers are to be that kind of a man. Deep, genuine, growing love of people. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. You know, you know, just in fact, actually listen to this. Listen to the power of these words that God gives. Paul, Paul writes, he uses the language of a mother and a father here. He says, We were gent he said, we could have made a demands as apostles of Christ. We're representing the king. But we were gentle among you. Like a nursing mother taking care of her own children, so being affectionately desirous of you. The language is of the language of a mother who's watching an ill child that may die. So being affectionately longing for you. We were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you would become very dear to us. Why is that here? It's because it represents Christ. Christ was the one who gave himself because of his love for them. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we preached to you the gospel of God. Your witnesses in God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers in your midst. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Brothers and sisters, that's not a professional parson. Parson was a term used for a clergyman, but the person... The professional clergyman. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here this evening solemnly in your presence and in the presence of God 
that we might hear what God says. Get over it, man. You're dealing with human beings. I think that's the predecessor to artificial intelligence, right there. Seriously, folks, it's a person who deals with other people, and that person loves those people. Okay, so th- those are just the general things, all right? Deep and growing devotion to the person and work of Christ, deep and growing experience of the dynamics of sin and grace, and deep and genuine and growing love for people. Is the person a sanctified people person? If he's not, you don't want him as your pastor. If he's not, I don't want him as an intern. If he's not, I don't want him in the ministry, period. I've gotten old enough that I can cut through the... Well, you know, we don't, we don't want to offend people. We, we, don't, we don't want to upset the person. You know, we don't, we don't want to... Hello? Does the Bible speak about qualifications for a man for the ministry? Who are you more concerned for? Anyway, all right, so let's go into this. The, the, uh, now you know why I love to teach pastoral theology. You guys got to put up with six days of this stuff. Okay, specifically... 1 Timothy 3, and then we'll do this real quickly because time is running on. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verses 2 through 7. Finally, what, what are the grace, what are the specific graces? One is irreproachable character. 1 Timothy 3, this saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of bishop, he desires a noble task. Therefore, the overseer must be, umbrella category, above reproach, which means you can't bring a charge against him. You, you, you can't bring a charge up before him in a church court or the court of law. He's irreproachable. But I don't know about you. That kind of leaves me cold. You really want to minister and you say, well, the best thing I can say about him is we really can't bring up any charge against him. That just doesn't quite ring right. I want to suggest that there's much more than that, and it's involved and what it is to be irreproachable as sinners under the administration of the gospel. Don't turn there, but Isaiah chapter 50 and verses 4 and 5. This is very, it's about Jesus' upbringing. The Lord God, speaking prophetically of Christ, has given me the tongue of those who are taught. He's first of all been taught, and then he has the tongue to do it. So there's your, there's your ministry role. That I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Well, that's ministry. How does that come? Morning by morning he awakens, he awakens my ear. This is Jesus speaking of his Father. Whoa! The ear precedes the tongue. To hear as those who are taught. If I'm going to teach, I need to learn to hear. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. That's indispensable to Christ's being irreproachable. He listened. Even as the God-man, he listened to his parents and to his teachers And I am convinced, brothers and sisters, that that's primarily what's in view here. Not that you just can't bring a charge against him, but he's someone who listens and someone who obeys. Titus chapter 1, verse 7, he's not self-willed. 
Because if a minister is not a man who listens, those he serves are not going to listen either. You have a minister who is not, I'll use the word, radically devoted to the obedience to the word of God, he ain't going to have a congregation that's committed to it either. All right. So, let's be specific. And again, 1 Timothy 3, beginning at, at verse 2 now. So, so you've got irreproachable character. That, that's number one. And number two, graces, that there's four of them here, the graces that bring effective godly rule in the home. 1 Timothy 3 and verse 2, not only above reproach, a one-wife husband doesn't mean he has to be married, but as married, he's not a playboy. He doesn't have his eye on the other gals. He's clearly committed to his wife. And then as you drop to verse 4, he's got to manage his own household well. He stands before his home, leading it with all dignity, keeping his children submissive, dealing with those that are in the home. For if someone does not know how to manage, how to oversee and lead and direct and provide for his own household, how will he take care of? of God's church because the church is a family and so you look for graces that bring effective godly rule in the home not perfect he's working on it he's someone clearly devoted to his wife because in the church you don't want him to be devoted to your wife and clearly he is doing what he can to see that house as a little church, if I could put it like that, okay? And then number three, graces that make the man able to relate to others graciously. Graces that make the man able to relate to others graciously. He's a sanctified people person. I love that phrase. First Timothy chapter 3. What? Listen to the language here. He is someone who is actually, will, 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 he is respectable. That's relating to somebody graciously. You, you respect him, he respects you. Hospitable. They show the grace of God in his house, in your home. Able to teach. Well, that's part of relating to people graciously. He's not violent, gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. Okay, so, so, so these, these are, and others, these are things that you want to be with this guy. There's something about him that is inviting. Why? It's like Christ who's inviting to people and what he is. Christ is the embodiment of these things. And so there's graces that make a man able to relate to others graciously. In the fourth case, graces that make a man a wise leader. Look at them again and and think of all of these with leadership. Sober-minded. He got two feet on the ground, so to speak. He's not a hothead, not crazy, sober-minded, self-controlled, which a leader must be, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not anyone who does things in excess. If the man, if the man is going to be a wise leader, he can't be violent. He must be gentle. He's not. He can't be quarrelsome. And he must not be a lover of money. So, so there's, there's things that, that are at least seminally the things that make a wise leader. And these are the things 
that commend a young minister. 1 Timothy 4 and verse 12. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. That commends a minister. Okay, let's wrap it up. These are things for you to cultivate in yourself. You say, oh, I'll just focus on the intern, a minister, and what does that have to do with me? Everything. Because the Apostle Paul says, Timothy, as you show these graces, and you're full of love and great and kindness, you're to be an example to the believer. How are you growing, brothers and sisters, in your family management, in your gentleness, and you're not being quarrelsome, in your relating to other people graciously? It applies to you and a minister, Paul. Be ye imitators of me as I am of Christ. That's what's in view. But these are also things you look for and pray for in the making of a minister. Do you desire the work of the ministry? What is it? What does that desire mean in you? Talk, talk to me about what it is. And graces. The Bible doesn't say these things are optional. It says the elder must have these things. You must be born again. Well, if I said, well, you know, that's kind of good if you're born again. It's a nice thing if you can get it, but it's not necessary. Well, that's heresy. You must have these graces. You, you look for those things. And if you see those things, that's part of your being the voice of Christ to say, Brother so-and-so, I think, is being called to the ministry. But there's got to be gifts, and we'll look at those next week. Let's pray. Our Lord, we are so grateful for the practicality of your word, for the honesty of your word. And Lord, what we're, what we're reading about here is about Christ and because that's a Christian minister, is to represent the Lord Jesus. For all of us who are in the ministry, make us more and more like him. Let our progress be evident to all. For our brother David and for others, we have two other interns in our presbytery this summer. Form the men in these ways. And for all men in whom you are working to call them to the ministry, may we begin to see the, the seedling and, and see the growth of these graces to the glory of our wonderful, perfect minister, Jesus. Amen. Amen.